This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1973, the charred body of Domingo Aranda, the first heroin godfather of Oinaga, Mexico, was found on the banks of the Rio Grande, the river that divides Mexico and Texas. According to rumors, his nephew and partner, Manuel Carrasco, believed Aranda was stealing from him. In retaliation, Carrasco shot him in the spine and doused him in gasoline. He and his men gathered around with a six-pack of Bud Light and watched as the flames engulfed Aranda's writhing body. Manuel Carrasco became the new kingpin of Oinaga. But within the next few years, he was exiled into hiding. His successor was shot to death. His successor's successor was sent to prison in the United States. No one could hold control of the border territory for more than three years until 1981, when a new kingpin rose to power, Pablo Acosta Villarreal. By the bitter end of Pablo's reign, Mexico would never be the same again. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the ParCast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld and why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. This is our first of three episodes on Pablo Acosta Villarreal, a Mexican narcotics trafficker who in the 1980s controlled a 200-mile stretch of territory along the U.S.-Mexico border. He's considered the founder of the Juarez Cartel, an organization that still controls the border drug trade to this day. This week, we'll take a look at the cultural, economic, and political circumstances that allowed Acosta to rise to power, even as there were multiple warrants out for his arrest in both Mexico and the United States. 
In the next two episodes, we'll discuss the rivalries, flawed decisions, and drug addiction that ultimately led to his downfall, as well as the lasting impact his actions had on the Mexican drug trade and generations of innocent civilians who live near the border. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's get back to the story of Pablo Acosta. It was a scorching afternoon in August 1985. Pablo Acosta leaned against the adobe wall of his warehouse, watching two young farmhands load bales of marijuana into a hidden compartment of their flatbed truck. He looked like a Wild West bandit in his western shirt and cowboy boots, a straw hat shading his bullet-scarred face. It could have been a costume if it weren't for the loaded machine gun resting against the wall next to him. At 47 years old, Pablo was at the peak of his success. He was moving 60 tons of Colombian cocaine across the U.S. border every year, along with untold amounts of marijuana and heroin. It's impossible to calculate how much money he was making. All he ever said was that he had more money than he could spend in a lifetime. Most of his profits were invested into the community in one way or another. As the padrino, or godfather of Oinaga, Mexico, Pablo literally ran the town, paying for bridges and roads, helping the elderly with their medical bills, repairing the rundown schools, like the elementary school right across the street from his drug warehouse. Of course, his philanthropy included regular donations to the police and military, an estimated 1.2 million U.S. dollars a year in exchange for their protection. The Mexican police were in his pocket, but the Americans were a different story. Moving drugs across the border took care and creativity. When the two farmhands had stashed all 700 pounds of marijuana in their truck, they covered the rest of the flatbed with hundreds of cantaloupe melons. Pablo's right-hand man, the balding, unassuming Marco de Haro, gave them a bit of money and sent them on their way up to a buyer in New Mexico. The next day, Pablo got a phone call. The buyer in New Mexico. He wanted to know where his dope was. No one had heard from the two drug runners since they crossed the border. They hadn't delivered the weed. They hadn't been arrested. Pablo definitely would have heard about that. They were either dead or they were going to wish they were. The next night, Pablo got word that the two farmhands had resurfaced at a motel in Oinaga. Pablo and a half-dozen gunmen burst in and grabbed the exhausted young farmers by the collars. Between slaps and punches, they shouted, What did you do with the dope? When the terrified young farmhands got a chance to speak, they explained they'd accidentally driven the truck into a ditch. Some of the cantaloupe toppled out and they couldn't maneuver the truck back onto the road. They'd spent the past two days walking across the desert back to Oinaga. The runners were dragged out to the parking lot, where a caravan of jeeps and pickup trucks were parked. 
Pablo shoved them into the back of one Jeep and told them they'd better remember where they'd left the truck or else they were going to die. They drove across the desert to an unguarded international bridge across the Rio Grande, about four hours northwest of Oinaga. It was a tense drive. Pablo, the hostage drug runners, and Amado Carrillo Fuentes. Amado was the baby-faced 28-year-old nephew of a drug lord from Guadalajara, 800 miles south of Oinaga. He'd been sent up north to learn about the border trade from Pablo, who warehoused some of his uncle's cocaine. This deal didn't directly concern him at all, but he was ride or die. Until they reached the border, the runners said they'd crash their truck about 10 miles north into New Mexico. But now that they were looking past the border, Amato said crossing over was a bad idea. If the American feds had found the truck, they could be waiting to ambush them as soon as they came back for it. Taking that risk for one truckload of weed was ridiculous. They could turn back, replace the lost product, and still break even on the deal. But if word got out that Pablo had been ripped off by two know-nothing farmhands, his reputation would be shot. He'd rather be remembered as the man who died in a midnight shootout with the feds defending a cantaloupe truck. Danger be damned, they were crossing the border. A few miles past, they found the cantaloupe truck in a ditch, right where they said it'd be. The full 700 pounds of marijuana were still intact. By the glow of a Jeep's headlights, the crew maneuvered the truck back onto the road and piled in hundreds of fallen melons. Pablo, Amado, and Marco watched from the hood of another Jeep, breaking out a pack of crack-laced Marlboros. When the job was done, Pablo gave the two runners a long-winded talk about dishonesty of human nature. He'd been ripped off again and again by people he thought he could trust, until eventually he came to mistrust everyone. They listened, petrified, waiting for their punishment. But instead, Pablo pulled out a wad of money and gave them each 500 American dollars. He sent them off with a vayan con Dios, God be with you. The farmhands hurried into the cantaloupe truck and sped off into the night. Pablo and his entourage lit up some more crack cigarettes and made haste back to Oinaga. The day's work wasn't done yet. There was a plane loaded with 1,800 pounds of cocaine scheduled to land at the Oinaga airport just before midnight. Keeping a drug ring running was tiresome work, but it was in Pablo's blood. The Acosta family had been smuggling for generations. When we come back, we'll start at the beginning of Pablo's story and see how a hard-working migrant farmer became one of the most notorious drug lords in Mexican history. Now back to the story. Oinaga, Mexico first became a hub for smuggling during the American Prohibition in the 1920s, when bootleggers crossed the river with bottles of Sotol, a cactus-based moonshine. When the prohibition ended, bootleggers turned to extracting and smuggling condalia wax, a common manufacturing ingredient that's made from the condalia plant. Among these smugglers was a hard-scrabble nomadic farmer named Lucas Acosta. 
When Lucas's son Cornelio came of age, he joined him in the mountains. They worked by moonlight for weeks at a time, harvesting condalia plants and boiling them down into wax. It was difficult, dangerous work, but Lucas saw it as a matter of ethics. The only reason exporting condalia wax was illegal was because the Mexican government controlled the industry, setting prices half as high as what buyers would pay across the border. Lucas asked his son, who should make the extra money, the poor condalia worker or the Mexican government, which turns around and sells it to the Americans anyway? Cornelio eventually settled down on a ranch outside Oinaga. He and his wife raised eight children, including Pablo, who was born on January 26, 1937. When Pablo was about 12, Cornelio took him and his four older siblings to search for farm work across the border. Cornelio was born in Texas, so he and all his children were natural U.S. citizens. The Acostas made their living as migrant farmers for nine years, wandering through Texas and New Mexico in search of labor. It was a hard life, but it was a life they were given. They made it through. But tragedy struck in 1958 when Pablo was 21. One night, Cornelio and Pablo were having beers at a bar in Fort Stockton, Texas. A man came up to Cornelio and told him there was someone who wanted to speak to him outside. Cornelio followed the man outside. Pablo stayed behind at the bar, thinking nothing of it, until... He heard a gunshot from outside. Pablo rushed out into the parking lot, where he saw his father lying sprawled on his back with a single bullet hole in his forehead. A pickup truck raced out of the parking lot. Pablo barely managed to catch the license plate number before it disappeared into a cloud of dust. Police tracked the license plate to a ranch hand named Pablo Beza. As it turns out, the Acosta and Beza families had a blood feud that stretched back for generations. Pablo's father, Cornelio, may not have even been aware of the feud, much less participated in it. But when Beza heard that an Acosta was in Fort Stockton that night, he considered it his familial duty to kill him. His father's senseless murder only ignited Pablo's own taste for blood. Pablo was known to be a hard worker and quiet until he got a few drinks in him. After losing his father, his drinking and violent behavior spiraled out of control. In the next few years, Pablo racked up half a dozen charges for drunk driving, disorderly conduct, and other misdemeanors. During the weeks, he lived and worked on a farm near the small town of Lovington, New Mexico. On the weekends, he stayed in an aluminum trailer behind his uncle's house in Lovington and spent his nights raising hell. In March 1961, 24-year-old Pablo was arrested at a restaurant in the town center after getting into a bar fight and throwing a pitcher through a window. Three years later, he was arrested after getting into a shootout outside the local cafe and pool hall on a Saturday night. He'd been arguing with another group of young men, and realizing he was outnumbered, Pablo left. But as he was backing out of the parking lot, one of the other men shot at him, 
grazing his cheek. Ignoring the wound, Pablo grabbed his rifle and fired back. It devolved into a full-scale shootout. No one was fatally wounded, but Pablo and a few of the other men were arrested. He spent months in jail awaiting trial, and when he finally made it to court, he was sentenced to another 90 days behind bars. Shortly after his release in late 1964, Pablo decided to turn over a new leaf, at least briefly. He moved 100 miles south from Lovington, New Mexico to Odessa, Texas, where some of his siblings had settled. In Odessa, he met a girl named Olivia, who coincidentally was also born in Oinaga, Mexico. They hit it off, and it wasn't long before they were married. Sometime between 1966 and 1968, Pablo and Olivia's only daughter, Karen, was born. Pablo had been getting by as a construction worker, one of the few jobs available to a Mexican immigrant with no education. But with a child to support, money was tight. Some of his construction colleagues offered him a solution. In the 60s, drug smuggling across the U.S.-Mexico border was still very small in scale. The vast majority of the heroin smuggled into the U.S. came in through Canada, and the cocaine trade hadn't yet taken off. But there was a growing drug operation just across the border in Oinaga, led by Domingo Aranda and Manuel Carrasco. The Oinaga traffickers recruited runners to sneak drugs across the border in quantities as small as an ounce at a time. Several of the construction workers who worked with Pablo had done it before, and it sounded like easy money. Of course, if he got caught, he'd be looking at years in federal jail. But none of his friends had ever been caught. The plan seemed perfectly safe. On the last weekend of May 1968, Pablo Acosta drove down to his hometown of Oinaga, Mexico, to visit some family. Before he left, he met up with some drug traffickers who'd attached a tiny balloon full of heroin to his upper arm with a rubber band. It would be impossible to find unless he was thoroughly searched. Pablo sailed across the bridge back to Texas without any hassle. He just needed to deliver the drugs and he was home free. But once he was a few miles past the border, he saw police lights flashing behind him. He tried to stay calm. The police didn't know anything, and even if they did, they couldn't search him without a warrant. But someone had apparently tipped off the police about the smuggling. Warrant or not, they said they had probable cause to order him out of the car and pat him down. What was supposed to be an easy paycheck had just turned into an eight-year federal sentence. Pablo had never been involved in the drug trade before the very day he was arrested. But once he was in prison, he easily made friends with other drug traffickers, including a heroin dealer known as Shorty Lopez. Shorty was born and raised in Odessa, Texas, and before his arrest, he'd been working for Manuel Carrasco, the drug lord who ran the territory just south of the border in Oinaga, Mexico. In the 70s, the Mexican drug cartels we know today hadn't yet formed. All drug traffickers were considered to be one group, the Mafia, 
but Carrasco and his small circle of friends had staked their claim on the border territory by paying off the federal police for protection. From Shorty Lopez, Pablo learned that smuggling was hopelessly dangerous work. The real money was in dealing the drugs once they made it across the border. In 1973, after serving five years of his eight-year sentence, Pablo was released early for good behavior. At 36 years old, he finally had a solid plan, and he was ready to put it into action. Pablo and his wife and daughter moved into a new two-bedroom bungalow in Odessa, Texas. He got a job at a roofing company and also began dealing heroin and marijuana on the side. He presumably got his drugs through Shorty Lopez, who was released from prison at around the same time and moved to Oinaga, Mexico to work directly for Manuel Carrasco. The local police quickly caught wind of Pablo's little operation, and by the next year, his home and other bases of operation were under constant surveillance. He was pulled over nearly any time he happened to drive past a police car. Whenever he was stopped, he handed over his driver's license and played dumb, telling the officers, I sorry, I no speak English. He and the officers all knew he spoke English perfectly well. In late 1974, Pablo moved his family to New Mexico, hoping the heat wouldn't follow him across state lines. He kept a low profile at first, funneling his savings into a legitimate enterprise, a self-owned roofing company. He invested in equipment, built up a network of customers, and then he started using the business as a front for heroin dealing. To avoid being overheard, he made his customers dress in workmen's clothes, climb up onto the roof with him, and talk business over the loud whir of heavy machinery. It was a clever plan, but it didn't throw the police off his scent for long. Pablo was moving unusually large quantities of heroin, sometimes pounds at a time, compared to the ounce-by-ounce ounce sales other dealers were making. This may be because he was getting his drugs directly from Carrasco's operation in Oinaga. By 1975, the DEA was aware of Pablo's dealings in Texas and New Mexico. They sent in an undercover agent to buy three pounds of heroin from him, which, adjusted for inflation, would be worth around $350,000 today. It nearly worked, but at the last minute, Pablo grew suspicious and called off the deal. If they wanted to catch him, they'd need a more careful approach. The DEA got an unexpected second chance the next year, in November 1976, when they set up a sting to catch another New Mexico heroin dealer named Delfino Rendon. Posing as big buyers from New York, two agents asked Rendon for a pound of heroin. At the time, a pound sold for an average of around $25,000. That'd be over $100,000 today. Putting together that kind of order would require a very well-connected source, and if the agents found out who Rendon's source was, they could catch two fish with one net. The agents were stunned when they followed Rendon to the little white two-bedroom home of Pablo Acosta. Since this was such a big sale, Pablo accompanied Rendon to the deal. They got into Rendon's pickup and drove to the agreed-upon site, 
a deep clay pit in the sand hills a few miles outside of town. They arrived at the pit at around sunset. There was an orange sedan already waiting there, the buyers from New York, that is, the undercover agents. Rendon followed the two men into the pit. Pablo stayed behind, leaning over the truck's hood, his straw cowboy hat shielding his face from the cold breeze. It all seemed routine until... One of the buyers pulled out a gun and shoved Rendon to the ground. Pablo drew his revolver. The man with the gun shouted at him, Police, put your hands up. Pablo took off running into the sand hills. One of the agents chased him for about a mile, but the sky was getting dark and it was difficult to see. Pablo ducked into a drainage pipe that ran under the highway. He pulled a tumbleweed in front of the pipe's opening to hide his face, and he waited. The DEA agent passed right in front of the pipe, so close Pablo could have reached out and touched him. He looked around, and then he moved on. The agents searched the foothills for a while longer, even using an airplane to patrol the area. But before long, it was too dark to see anything, so they called it off. Pablo had slipped out of their grasp once again. When the desert was finally silent, Pablo crawled out of the pipe and hitchhiked back into town. He suspected, correctly, that there would soon be a federal warrant out for his arrest. There was only one thing to do. The Acosta family was moving back to Oinaga, Mexico. Kingpin Pablo Acosta's story continues in just a moment. Now back to the story. In Mexico, the phrase, ¿Quién está manejando la plaza? Literally, who's running the town square, colloquially means, who's in charge here? In the context of the drug trade, the person running the plaza, so to speak, was the trafficker in control of a given territory. Before the system of rivaling cartels was solidified in the late 80s, the Mexican crime world was something like a multi-level corporation. At the top were the police, federal army, and other public officials. In each area, there was one drug lord who paid the local law enforcement divisions to turn a blind eye to their crimes. Anyone else was free to sell, grow, or smuggle drugs in that area as long as they paid a fee to the man on top to cover a portion of the police payoffs. But anyone who tried to deal drugs without paying the trafficker who held the plaza, as they called it, would be immediately turned into the police and arrested. This was a good idea for the reigning drug lords because it weeded out competition. And it was also good for the police, who could point to these occasional busts as proof they were actually doing something about narcotics. In the early 70s, Oinaga's plaza was controlled by Manuel Carrasco. After he set his predecessor on fire on the banks of the Rio Grande in 1973, Carrasco expanded his operation until he was the ultimate source of all the drugs sold in the Oinaga region, as well as the area north of the border in Texas and New Mexico. Then in 1976, Manuel Carrasco suddenly disappeared. The word was that he had gone into hiding after a violent feud with a supplier, but even his closest associates didn't know exactly where he'd gone. 
And for a while, no one was sure who was running the plaza. A few months later, officials from the state capital in Chihuahua City paid a visit to Manuel's former right-hand man, Shorty Lopez. With Manuel gone, the responsibility for plaza payments fell to him. When 39-year-old Pablo Acosta arrived in Oinaga in November 1976, just a day after narrowly escaping the DEA, he couldn't have found himself in a better situation. His old prison buddy was running the local racket. Shorty gave Pablo a machine gun and immediately put him to work as his chauffeur and bodyguard. Pablo kept dealing to his old heroin contacts in Texas and New Mexico from the safety of Oinaga, either forcing his American customers to come down to him or hiring runners to carry drugs across the border. As long as he didn't cross the border, the DEA couldn't touch him. And as long as he paid a percentage of his profits to Shorty Lopez, the Mexican police wouldn't bother him either. As fronts for his heroin dealing, he opened a clothing boutique, which his wife Olivia oversaw, and a restaurant near the town square. He had been making good money in New Mexico, but south of the border, his business was really booming. The Oinaga narcotics world was, at that moment, a place of perfect harmony. Until Manuel Carrasco, who was still in hiding, got wind that Shorty had taken over control of the plaza. It's a little odd that Carrasco took offense to this. He'd been missing for months, and someone had to run things in his stead. Nonetheless, rumors emerged that Carrasco was planning to kill his old second-in-command in revenge for the power grab. Shorty had only ruled the Oinaga Plaza for about a year before Carrasco decided his time was up. On the 1st of May, 1977, Shorty and his driver were heading to his ranch, a few miles outside Oinaga, when he was ambushed by a few of Carrasco's men. Shorty, his driver, and several of Carrasco's gunmen died in the shootout. Carrasco himself was still nowhere to be found, and once again, the plaza was up for grabs. When Carrasco disappeared, public officials came to Shorty and told him he was next in line for the plaza. But after Shorty's death, months came and went, and nobody got a visit with official orders. It was as if the plaza system had suddenly been abolished. The police began raiding the headquarters of the drug rings they'd once protected, arresting anyone and everyone. Pablo scaled back his operations, staying as quiet as possible while still paying the bills. But by December 1977, he too was arrested in a raid. He was taken to the Chihuahua City Penitentiary, where he ran into a fellow drug trafficker by the name of Fermin Arivalo. Fermin was in his early 40s, around the same age as Pablo, but he was already a local criminal legend. There was a popular folk ballad telling the tale of his daring escape from the police after a bank robbery. In reality, that bank robbery was an embezzlement scheme, and he'd spent nine months in jail for it. By all accounts, Fermin was both notoriously dishonest and viciously violent. He'd been arrested the previous year, when police helicopters descended upon his 12,000-acre ranch and captured him along with 18 of his associates. 
Fermin and Pablo had already met a few times. Their business circles overlapped, but they weren't exactly either associates or rivals. The more they spoke, Fermin took a liking to the rookie drug dealer, and he worked his connections to get Pablo released from prison by the end of the month. From then on, the Acostas were close with the Arevalo family, including Fermin's wife Antonia and their sons, Lily and Lupe, who were somewhere around their early 20s. When Fermin was furloughed from prison the next month, Pablo helped organize his welcome home party and even offered to buy all the beer. But the celebration was short-lived. By early 1978, nearly a year had passed without anyone running the plaza, and the chaos was becoming unmanageable. Pablo and a dozen other local traffickers met to discuss what to do. Someone had to go down to the state capital in Chihuahua City and straighten things out. It had to be someone experienced, knowledgeable, and well-spoken. The group volunteered Pablo. Pablo may have had ambitions to take over the plaza eventually, but for now, he already had too much heat. If he was too loud, the DEA might try to extradite him. Instead, he recommended a smooth-talking drug runner named Victor Sierra. Victor agreed to go down and talk to the federal police commander, who'd handled the plaza payments under Carrasco and Shorty. When Victor was taken in to see the commander, he told him, respectfully, that he knew what was going on in Oinaga and he was willing to take over the plaza. The commander pressed him with questions. How did he know to come to the federal police headquarters? How did he know to come to him specifically? All Victor would say was that he'd worked for Manuel Carrasco and Shorty Lopez. Finally, the commander motioned for two other officers to come into the room. He said to them, get him ready for me. The officers dragged Victor into a back room. They threw a bag over his head and beat him relentlessly for days, grilling him for information. They shocked him with a cattle prod, forced his head into a bucket of water until he nearly drowned, and punched and kicked him until he was bloody. After three days, Victor broke and told the commander everything he knew about the Oinaga drug world. Satisfied, the commander told Victor he had permission to work the Oinaga Plaza. The whole interrogation had been a test. Apparently, he'd proven himself to be both tough under pressure and knowledgeable about the narcotic scene. The underworld's order was restored once more. The raids and arrests stopped. From 1978 to 1980, Oinaga grew into one of the biggest narcotics hubs in Mexico. For the first time, U.S. agents were seeing large loads of heroin and marijuana in Texas and New Mexico, all apparently coming in from Oinaga. Pablo's own operation expanded into one of the most powerful in the area. He cultivated his contacts, started growing his own marijuana fields, and quietly watched Victor operate, poising himself to take over when the right moment came. Victor was learning the hard way that prosperity came at a price. At first, his monthly payment to the police was just $10,000. But the commander had a habit of showing up at Victor's house unannounced, inviting themselves in, 
and notifying him that the arrangement had changed. Now it was $25,000 a month, then $35,000. The message was clear. The police had the real power here, and if Victor didn't pay up, the raids and arrests would begin again. Victor's reign as kingpin was cut short on December 18, 1980. He was en route to Vegas to oversee a marijuana shipment. As soon as he touched ground for his connecting flight at the Albuquerque airport, he was swarmed by DEA agents. Unbeknownst to him, the DEA had put together a 19-count indictment against him six months earlier. He was looking at eight years in American federal prison. Just months after Victor's arrest, U.S. Customs agents began to hear from informants that there was a new kingpin in Oinaga, Pablo Acosta. It's not clear exactly how Pablo was chosen as the new plaza holder, though by this point, he was known to be one of the most successful and well-connected traffickers in the area. And now that he was the state-sanctioned leader of the entire region, he set his sights higher than anyone before him. Pablo wasn't satisfied with complicity from the police. He wanted their active cooperation. He convinced the federal police to open a headquarters in Oinaga so he could make payments to them without having to travel. He obtained sets of fake military and police credentials for himself and his men, giving them authority over any officers or civilians who dared to stand in their way. He even hired armed federal soldiers to guard the perimeter of his marijuana fields. U.S. authorities were completely aware of Pablo's activities. But now that the Mexican police were on his payroll, they'd lost any chance of extraditing him. Unless he crossed the border, there was nothing they could do to stop him. The only real threat standing in his way was an old friend, Fermin Arevalo. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we look at Pablo's years ruling the Mexican border and the rivalries and short-sighted decisions that would eventually lead to his downfall. You can find Kingpins as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.